Hello and welcome to The Crit. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm one of your co-hosts and I'm joined by India Block, your other co-host. Hi, India. Hello. I feel slightly conflicted about this late November recording time because I feel it's at a point in the year when everyone has given up and can't be bothered anymore. But equally, it's not yet socially acceptable to admit you're not going to be doing any more work and are just slowly winding down before the holidays. Well, I think we've actually passed the official equal pay day where women stop getting paid for their labour due to the gender pay gap. So I feel I'm entitled to, to not really be doing any any work. I have no such excuse. And yes, I also feel entitled to do no work. I'm like an aircraft whose engines have cut out in the air and now all the pilot can do is try and glide it back to ground, avoiding catastrophic loss of life or income in this case, I suppose. I think that um, that metaphor kind of captures the panic and the terror inherent in realising that we've got about six weeks to Christmas as well. No, actually, no, that's not true. It's four <laughs> weeks until Christmas. Oh, no. Yeah, it sort of plays any which way, though, because you, on the one hand, you kind of think, oh, it's four weeks to Christmas. That's quite a long way off. But at the same time, when you're presented with some work, you also feel entitled to say, well, it's it's only four weeks to... I, I surely can't be expected to deal with this. What with what with Christ's birthday so close? I need, I need to begin preparing and looking forward to having a glass of champagne at 9am or, or whatever it is that you do to celebrate. So, uh, speaking of the upcoming Festival of Consumerism, we have the news that Apple is planning to bring in some repair kits, which is is kind of a big deal if you've ever owned a piece of Apple technology. Currently, if you don't kind of fork over rather significant sums of cash to get your pieces officially fixed by Apple. You void your warranty if you attempt to tinker around with it at home, or if you go to a phone repair shop and they don't use kind of the official Apple products and methods, you're kind of signing away uh, any right to then come back if it doesn't work and get Apple to to fix it for you. So I'd be interested to see what you think about it, Ollie, because I, I flip-flop on this one. Sometimes I'm like, this is really great, it's very exciting, they're going to be selling repair kits so that if you back yourself you can repair your things at home or you know phone shops are going to be able to become official partners. Yeah so I think it's a positive move definitely so I think it's quite a limited program so far so Apple will make spare parts and home repair available for it's what two phones the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 they will start looking at laptops in the future. And I don't think it's all elements of the phone can be repaired at home. I think it's only, you know, sort of screens and batteries, things which are fairly easy to repair and go wrong um, quite regularly. I mean, it's, it's, it's to be commended, even if it is very limited, because there is a massive problem with, with phone waste. I mean, uh, one issue back in December 30, we actually looked at the export of electronic waste and, United States, for instance, exports 50 to 80% of its e-waste and apparently more than 200,000 tonnes of it are arriving in Ghana every year, builders' donations. So anything that can be done to curb that a little bit and make products last longer is a very good thing. I, I just don't know if this will have a huge impact on it because even if you can repair your devices, there's still that throwaway culture. I think lots of people will still want to get rid of their phones to get a newer model when it comes out. So it's encouraging, but I can't see it making a massive difference to the overall problems. Yes, I mean, in some ways, it does seem to be as though Apple is trying to get ahead of uh, a kind of avalanche of negative press coming its way. We've had a lot of um, lawsuits that have actually been won, I think one in Chile, one in France. So now Portugal's gearing up these kind of class action lawsuits accusing Apple or kind of technology companies that sell Apple products of releasing updates ahead of launches of new products that have slowed down older models. Oh, this is the planned obsolescence thing, right? Mm -hmm. Which has always kind of dogged Apple's yearly calendar of releasing new products. But now there's actually been some kind of 
legal uh, legal cases, including one in America, and now under Biden's presidency, the right to repair movement is gaining a lot of ground. So in some ways, Apple doing this allows them to get ahead of any more negative it's a strange one, isn't it? Because on the some hand, on the one hand, it doesn't feel very Christmassy to be criticising this because it is a really good move. It's easy to complain and uh, throw criticism at big corporations, and they definitely deserve it. But this is a positive step for Apple to have made to make their products more available. I just think the problem is you're not really going to get away from those overarching issues until you change our whole relationship with tech. So even if things can be replaced, people will still want to upgrade. And there's also around like what you've been saying with the planned obsolescence, there's discussions about software and the way in which software is designed. So there's a good case to be made, for instance, that new software which is coming out shouldn't take sort of maximum advantage of what contemporary hardware enables it to do because then that immediately means it can't run on older devices and you shut out a lot of people who don't have the newest phone who don't have the newest laptop that can be quite socially pernicious for instance because it's often say older people who don't have the most up-to-date devices and then if they can't access essential services because the software is very zippy and whiz-bang. That's a real problem. So it's great that Apple have done this, but I don't think it's a panacea by any means. So one of the other news items that caught my eye this month was the final fate of the Tulip, which is the Foster and Partners planned tower for London. For anyone who hasn't seen the Tulip, it was a huge sort of tower of reinforced concrete with effectively a glass bulb at the top and the idea was people would go up and it would be a viewing platform out over London. It was in the backyard of the Gherkin which also designed by Foster and Partners and they were meant to sort of be sympathetic creations. The Tulip had a lot of issues (laughs) over the course of its lifetime. So it was initially approved by the City of London, but then the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, overturned that decision, calling it an unwelcoming, poorly designed mega project. And it just got a lot of sort of internet wags speaking because it was called the Tulip because it was meant to look like a tulip. But India, I mean, you know this project. What do you think it looks like? Uh, what does it look like? It looks like an alien probe, like a sex toy. I think it looks a bit like a hemorrhoid. There is something nightmarish about it. Just looking, it's one of those buildings that just looking at it makes me feel a little bit sick and not out of any aesthetic consideration. And I do think it's interesting that the um, final planning decree on it refused to come down on the side of aesthetics and um, kind of said that beauty was very much in the eye of the beholder and it wasn't going to pass judgment on that. Well, we've uh, we've jumped the gun a bit because we haven't revealed yet that it was... You've, you've spoiled the ending. Oh, oh, God, spoiler alert. Sorry. Well, my big reveal is, is ruined. This month, it was finally decided by the government that the tulip would not go ahead after this public inquiry following Sadiq Khan's rejection of it, which cost over half a million pounds, by the way. To the taxpayer. It was decided that the tulip would not be constructed. No, so we will never get to to experience the terrifying ordeal of this kind of glass capsule that was going to have from the look of the renderings was going to have glass viewing decks around a 360 degree viewing area which was be connected by sky bridges and slides it was just like a kind of mashup of all the most egregious architecture trends oh and then on the outside it was going to have three little gondola rides like miniature london eyes that were just kind of going to whiz around in endless loops. It was just just the most bonkers idea. Yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the main reasons that they ultimately decided that it couldn't go ahead is around sustainability. And they said for the value it would bring, because, you know, it's not providing offices, it's not providing housing, it is purely this viewing platform, that wasn't worth the embodied carbon within that tower structure to create it. And that's quite interesting because Foster and Partners 
as a practice perhaps does not have the strongest environmental credentials of architects out there. I know they dispute this, but Foster and Partners famously was the practice which pulled out of Architects Declare, um, an industry-wide body of architects attempting to take climate collapse a little bit more seriously. Well, I think I think Foster and Partners would debate you there because they they did design the world's most sustainable office building for another billionaire, um, one Mr. Bloomberg, for which they won the Sterling Prize. But uh, some critics have argued that they jimmied the numbers around a little bit because they didn't include the embodied carbon of the sandstone and bronze facade in their calculations. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing. So basically, the criticism that Foster and Partners tends to get for its projects, because it's a massive practice, so it gets these mega projects, it does airports, these huge office buildings, and so on. And in terms of their sort of operational sustainability, these buildings are very efficient. They they operate well, they reduce energy use, and so on. But what Foster and Partners don't tend to factor in when they speak about it is the embodied carbon in the construction of these buildings. And if you're creating these massive concrete mega projects, that's that's a huge factor. And actually, Norman Foster, the head of the practice, spoke about this at COP26. He came out and, and rightly said the existing um, the existing systems around sustainability in architecture, so LEED and BREAM and all of these, what do you call them... <laughs> What is lead and bream? Like uh, sustainability standards. Yes, thank you very much. They pointed out, oh, those don't factor in embodied carbon and we really need to. So he's he's 100% right. But then you think the brass neck on the man to be saying this whilst at the same time putting forward the tulip. It, it sort of shows that disconnect in the industry between, I think architects know what's right and know that they need to stop doing these things stop making huge concrete viewing platforms but it it doesn't seem to then ever translate into meaningful action on their part and then if we've only got you know 30 years to turn this ship around in terms of the climate crisis it doesn't matter if your building will run sustainably for 100 years if you've kind of blown all of that carbon budget in the 10 years it took to build it Yeah, it speaks of a particular moment in architecture, doesn't it, with these huge vanity projects, these great sort of iconic shapes. And I think that probably on the whole isn't the general tenor of the industry now. If you look at who's tending to win prizes these days, there's quite a shift. So the Pritzker Prize, obviously, this year won by Anne Lacatin and Jean-Philippe Vassal. And their whole work is based around reusing and adapting existing structures and pointing out it's always going to be better to work with what's already there and try and make those spaces better and more generous and more human rather than demolishing and throwing something new up. And it was quite interesting because this month as well, the um, Sone Medal was announced and that went to the Bangladeshi architect Marina Tabasum. And a big part of the jury citation was pointing out her work with sustainability, sort of building light, trying not to have this huge impact on the earth and I mean, she said when, when she won, my current work is focused on the twin crises of Bangladesh, the plight of refugees and the heightened threat to our population of flooding exacerbated by global warming. Both factors have led me to focus on prototyping low impact mobile housing, which can be delivered at the lowest cost possible for those in need. Now, I think that's the kind of attitude which is very in vogue at present, and rightly so. But that's certainly not the kind of architecture I think you would associate with Norman Foster or or other architects of that ilk. I mean, speaking of the ugly realities of development and architecture and billionaires who want to get their own way, I think that quite nicely seeks us into another item on our news agenda the manga dormitory oh this is fantastic fantastically horrible (laughs) yeah so this is the case of charles munger billionaire and partner of warren buffett and he's decided that he can improve upon the architecture great himself 
Corbusier's mode of living. So Charlie Munger is funding a huge new student dormitory for the University of California, Santa Barbara, which is badly in need of more student housing. So when a billionaire came along and said, well, I'll build you some. However, I would like to design it. I imagine they bit his hand off. Now, the problem is that Munger's architecture is insane. It's a single housing block which is going to house 4,500 students. It only has two main entrances, (laughs) by the way. And it's designed like a prison. They're just very, very regimented rows of dormitories, the vast majority of which don't have windows. And like you pointed out, Munger Munger draws an astonishing architectural pedigree for his work. So he says that this is an improvement upon Le Corbusier's uh, Cité Radius concept. I know my French accent is appalling and I probably said that very, very poorly, but there you go. Uh, And Munger says he's improved upon it in every respect. He said Le Corbusier's original didn't work worth sugar. And sugar there, I'm subbing in for another S uh, substance, a worse S substance. Yeah, I mean, Munger fully backs himself with the kind of insane confidence that I guess having so much money, no one has told you no for about half a century would give you. Um, He's basically completely, you know, Teflon when it comes to the criticism that has been lobbied at this. And the only reason that we kind of know about it is because someone leaked a resignation letter of one of the architects who was present when this plan was presented to the university. Who was on the design review committee, whose job it was to look over these things. They they couldn't vote. I believe it was presented as a fait accompli. They basically got to look at it and, you know, the plans and the models. But because it came with this clause that the only way of getting the money to get this desperately needed accommodation was to go through with this design, um, I don't think he had any say in it, which is why Dennis McFadden resigned and he called it a social and psychological experiment um, because Munger's idea was to pack everyone in and to give everyone their own bedroom, which I believe is unusual in the American schooling system. Usually people... Yeah, you typically have a dorm mate, mm-hmm. don't you? You have to share. I- I've seen American films. I know how <laughs> it works. We understand the yeah. culture. Everyone gets their own little tiny pod and instead of windows, they're going to get um, kind of electric screen windows that have been likened to the more budget Disney Cruise options where you get a fake porthole that you can kind of uh, change according to your needs. So it was too expensive for the Munger dormitory to program it for a kind of typical night-to-day cycle. Instead, uh, Munger says it's very romantic because you can kind of dim the lights as you wish. But the idea is that in order to access natural daylight, you will need to come out of your nasty little pit into the common areas to socialise. The university has come back against some of the major criticisms you mentioned. There's only two main exits and entrances. Apparently they are 14 emergency exits, so it's not the complete death trap. No, I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's a very extreme example of a trend you see all over without much consideration for people who are actually going to have to use buildings, but it's all about efficiency and cost and how many people can you cram into a small floor plan. But it's, I think it's a story which just has legs because Charlie Munger is such an extraordinary person. Someone pointed out to him uh, some of these issues around ventilation and uh, things, and his response was, nobody minds going into a basement restroom and peeing because there's no window. It's like, yeah, but we don't live in basement toilets. He is such like a heightened, preposterous figure of a developer and architect. But you know, it, it's not a story which is totally alien. It, it's a very extreme example, but it, it's not without precedent. So I actually wanted to talk about a couple of stories which we have in the new issue of Desenio, Desenio 31, which comes out in early December. 
And one which I'm very keen on is the opening of M+. Now, M+, is a new museum in Hong Kong devoted to uh, modern and contemporary art, but also design, architecture, visual culture, uh, video. So it, it's quite comprehensive. Now, in the issue, we have a discussion with the architects at Zogan de Muron speaking about their design for that building, which is lovely. It's a really interesting space on uh, West Kowloon Island. But what I wanted to talk about here with you, India, was a little bit more the institution itself, because this is a major new enterprise. It's it's a sort of museum on the same scale as Tate Modern in London, or <laughs> what's, what's the New York? MoMA. MoMA yes. <laughs> All I could think was Santa Pompidou. I think it was Pompidou is so nice to say. So this is a major new institution for the field. I think hugely important. They have a fairly extensive collection. But I think the really interesting thing is this is the first sort of major, huge art design museum which is being curated from an Asian perspective. It's an institution in Hong Kong reflecting on global design, whereas normally it's the other way round. You know, curation in design has been very driven by Western Europe and the US. And one of the reasons I'm quite excited about the curatorial potential of M Plus is the collection is very impressive. They've built it from scratch and there's some amazing things in there. It's very centred on Asia and East Asian design, architecture and art. Um, and that in itself is a great thing to see that work displayed. So they have things for instance from Star Industrial Company which is the largest plastic manufacturer in Hong Kong they've got Shiro Kurumata's Ishimaru Keiotomo sorry again for pronunciation Sushi Bar which is the last extant interior that that Japanese designer created but I think they also have uh, some things which to a Western audience are very familiar. They have the archive of Archigram, the British architectural studio. They have a large number of holdings of Marcel Duchamp. But all of these things have been acquired for their relevance to East Asia. So with uh, Marcel Duchamp, they've said, well, we got it because it's very formative to the work of the Chinese avant-garde. With Archigram, it's very important to a lot of architects in this region and we want to look at that influence. And I think that will be quite exciting to see some of these very familiar works being presented in a different cultural context. And it's just really nice, I think, to see... Um, to see China and Asia, which is so often talked about in design, often quite dismissively, actually, I think, in Europe and US and large discussions around copying and things like that. But to see them actually have control of this curatorial narrative and to be able to shape and present these histories, but in a different way, that I think is something very valuable. Yeah, it's really exciting to kind of see Hong Kong get put on the map and very much in its own terms. It's a really interesting and exciting collection and this idea of being the plus in museum, that it will go beyond, that it will engage with digital and multimedia culture and art in a new way is very exciting. I also think it's um it's an interesting situation where on the one hand a lot of the international press can't be there for the opening. Hong Kong has very strict lockdown regulations in place at the moment. I think it's three weeks quarantine, isn't it, in a hotel when you arrive. And, you know, similar to mainland China, the the region has been incredibly locked down due to COVID and it doesn't look like it's going to be opening anytime soon, which is causing a lot of consternation for kind of Western companies that have um, business operations running out of there. And then we also have the political landscape, which has changed a lot since M Plus was conceived. This building itself, the Herzog and Dumuron design, it's it's taken 14 years and an undisclosed budget. I believe it was originally set at somewhere near $760 million. We don't know how much it's actually cost to build, but the political landscape has changed drastically in that time. And when it was first mooted, there was a lot of excitement that this would be a... Asian art museum that would be able to collect and display more politically subversive pieces that would be censored in mainland China. Yeah, you know, the one the one country, two systems idea, I suppose, was the suggestion that Hong Kong is the perfect place to do something like this. Yeah, that it has a different system, that it's more liberated 
politically than the mainland. However, the new national security law that was brought in in the middle of last year uh, now, you know, makes it a serious offence to um, display anything that could be kind of construed as political terrorism. Yeah, so I think some Ai Weiwei works have already been censored in M+, for instance. It's a series of him giving the middle finger to, to, to places all around the world, actually. But one of those images is Tiananmen Square, and sort of mainland censors have clamped down on that. So I think that's been pulled from display, and a number of other pieces of sort of political art are being scrutinised at present. So the, they're still in the collection, and uh, however, kind of uh, pro-Beijing politicians have criticised the museum. Um, I believe that some of the sensitive uh, pieces are on display, but they tend to be dealing with pre-80s. There's nothing currently sensitive that has gone on display. The other interesting thing is obviously there's the national security law from June 2020, which he set out and which has made cracking down on dissent and protesters much more common. But even last month, the Legislative Council passed amendments to the Film Censorship Ordinance, which means that the government can ban films deemed contrary to national security. I think two screenings planned in Hong Kong have already been cancelled as a result of that. Now, for an institution like M+, which is specifically hanging its hat on displaying video and visual culture and all of that side, that has a massive impact. If if the city in which you've just opened with is suddenly facing new legislation around what film you can and cannot show, I mean, it, it it's a fraught opening in that respect. I did read um, some of the press around the opening weekend, and because the international crowd can't be there... The, of the kind of four exhibitions that are on at the moment, the one that was apparently the most popular was the Hong Kong Here and Beyond exhibition, which really focused on the kind of 60s and 70s up to the present day depictions of Hong Kong in popular culture. So it, it's interesting to see that, you know, these will only be local people in attendance and that's what people are really interested in. As, a, as I mentioned before, there is a big discussion with the architects in the new issue. For, so for anyone wanting to know more about this, do pick up a copy. Uh, but one of the fascinating things is a big aspect of this whole project and of their architecture is centred around public space. They want M plus to function a little bit like the design they did for Tate Modern, for instance, where... Yes, you go there to see exhibitions, but you can also go there just to hang out or meet friends or wander around the atrium or go and see a screening. So there's a huge discussion as part of M Plus about, well, how do you make this institution complementary to the public realm in Hong Kong? And they speak about some of the differences, for instance, between public space in Europe to public space in Hong Kong. Now, that's a fascinating thing to have a new piece of architecture whose entire creation has been around these ideas of public space at a time in which in recent years public space in Hong Kong conjures up images of protest and dissent and the state cracking down on that. So it's as an institution its launch at this time I think is very politically interesting whether inadvertently or I suppose it is inadvertently, although the architects are certainly aware of these issues, it, it poses a number of questions and it will be interesting to see how it operates over the coming years. Now, one other piece, I mean, there's so many good things in this issue, you're really going to have to pick it up to, to get hold of them all. But um, this is a this is something really exciting for me as a complete beauty product addict. You have been talking to a studio that's been doing some very exciting materials research that I believe is about to come uh, into fruition, designing packaging for the beauty and personal care industries that is made out of bacteria. So this is the story of Shellworks, which it actually started life as a student project at the Royal College of Art on the IDE course. And they began to look into the beauty industry and packaging, which after the food industry produces the most packaging waste, and the vast majority of that is plastic. So they started looking at, are there alternatives to, uh, to plastic? What else could you make this stuff from? If you're going to get rid of it, what would be a better way? And it did, originally they were looking at uh, Kaitosan, 
which is a, bi a polymer found in shellfish, basically, hence the name Shellworks. But over time, they've moved away from that. And what they're now exploring is uh, a biodegradable plastic. Again, it's very hard to say, so bear with me. Polyhydroxylacanoate? And like you say, this is a polyester which is produced in the cells of bacteria. And once you extract that polyester, combine it with a few additives, all of which are natural, you can treat it like a regular thermoplastic. You can injection mould it and do all of the things you'd normally do. It can hold colour. But the benefit is at the end of its life, when it's discarded, it breaks down and is a benign presence in the environment. So it, it's quite an exciting thing that these designers are doing, really. It's so exciting. And, and it breaks down in the environment without being kind of, uh, you know, composted at industrial temperatures. So it's it's biodegradable, but not in this kind of greenwashing way that thing, you know, things can be biodegradable under certain circumstances. And I think one of the really interesting tensions that you explored in this article, which I think harks back in a way to our discussion about the Apple repair kit, is that, yes, they initially started designing with this waste material from the shellfish. Yeah, from the waste streams from seafood, basically, exactly. Which is currently, you know, huge. We are an island nation. We catch and consume an awful lot of shellfish. So there is this material going to waste that could be turned into something useful. Shellworks found that when you're working with the beauty industry, however, is that people are really concerned about things being vegan. And it's it's not vegan to make something out of a animal product, even if it is a, a byproduct. Um, and I think you really brought me around because at first I was like, well, if it's there, like surely using it is the kind of net gain to the environment to kind of use the whole part of an animal. However, you made the really excellent point that in using that waste material, you're then supporting the system, which includes catching all of these creatures and killing them and eating them and destroying marine environments along the way. So it is exciting that they've kind of created this new material that works along those ethoses of, of not creating plastics out of something that's extracted from the ground, but that's extracted from living cells without harming them. Yeah, I'm a great admirer of Shellworks and what they've done. And, you know, I, I feel very conflicted about that chitosan material too, because I think there are good cases to be made on both sides. It does make sense to use waste. It, it might be regrettable where that waste is coming from, but if you can put it to use, there's something to be said for that. I think what they show in their work is that these material decisions are really complicated, and there are a huge number of factors to consider. It, the, the nice thing about what Shellworks do is that they're sort of revealing there aren't any easy answers. So even with this biodegradable plastic, they're very attuned to potential issues around that, for instance. So to create this sort of polyester within the cells, you have to feed the bacteria on the carbon source. And they have discussions in studio about, well, what should that carbon source be? Are you using waste there? Big advantages to that, obviously, but at the same time, you have to purify it and there are questions around those processes. Are you using something like sugar? Well, then, where's that sugar being grown? What is that taking land away from? So it's quite interesting. I don't think they, I don't think they think that the plastic they've developed is a cure-all by any means, but it's something which engages with the overarching problem. And that is a huge problem. So 6,300 metric tonnes of plastic waste estimated to have been produced up until 2015. Of that, only 9% has been recycled. So 79% is in the environment or in landfill. This is a huge issue and that's growing. So the statistics I just mentioned, they're from this uh, peer-reviewed report in Science Advances, and they've predicted that 12,000 metric tonnes of plastic waste will be in landfill or the environmental or the natural environment by 2050 if we continue on the path we're on. So I think what Shellworks do is that they identify there's a clear problem, but then their work starts to tease out that actually solving it is really hard and there are trade-offs to be made. So I, I'm quite impressed by them and 
if people would like to know more, then do do pick up the issue and read the article. So moving into our products and projects section, very fun, lovely and lively one to kick us off. Ollie, what do you think you would see if you were a bee? If I were a bee, probably a lot of other bees, a lot of honey, uh, some flowers, vicars having trysts in the village, scandalously, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, this is not what this particular project is about. This is the Pollinator Pathway, which is the the project of Daisy Ginsberg. She's collaborated with a very interesting, wide-ranging group of people to bring this about, including a master beekeeper called Roger Dewhurst and a string theorist. And together they have devised this garden via algorithm, which is something that would initially make me kind of rear back in horror at the thought of an algorithm (laughs) designing a garden. But the idea is actually very sweet. It's that she wanted to create a sculpture that was about bees, but also for bees and all other pollinators. So your, your butterflies and your moths. So instead of creating something that's visually attractive necessarily to the human eye, it's something that would guide bees towards it and entice them in through colours and smells. So this algorithm has designed this big garden that's been planted at the Eden Project in Cornwall. And they're also planting some satellites in London and Berlin. And yes, it's all due to bloom by spring, summer 2022. Some volunteers have been down there hard at work planting and then bees will be able to see this beautiful garden. It's a great project because I mean, we all know how important pollinators are and how under threat honeybees are as well. But it's very in keeping with Daisy's wider work. I mean, I know her PhD project, for instance, was very focused around this idea of better in design and design's obsession with better and she asked a lot of questions around well better for who and she has this really nice example we covered it in decennio a few issues back of the pet plastic bottle which by some measures is a better object it's a great design there's a lot going for it it's just you know when you consider later on its environmental impact it's a much much worse design and i think her point is better is always relative And here it's really nice to see her designing for a non-human audience and extending those ideas a little bit. And, well, who are we designing for? Who is the audience? Who are the things we're creating better for? So it it sounds like a a great project. Yeah, it's this kind of radical empathy of asking you to to take the viewpoint of these creatures that are endangered. And it's also, it's very generous because they've launched a website which anyone can access and you can kind of tap in your own garden dimension. So whether it's a garden that you yourself are lucky enough to be able to plant or whether it's a kind of dream garden and then you can choose if it's shady, what type of soil it has and then you um, can run the algorithm yourself and you will get a garden generated kind of online and you get this beautiful virtual visualization that you can then play throughout the year and you can watch it blooming and you can hear the bees buzzing. I actually had a go with it yesterday and I'm sorry to say it said no garden could be created to meet my requirements. I think I'd put it was a heavy clay, no light, limited light and quite a restrictive plot. And it said there weren't enough, there weren't enough plants to make uh, a satisfactory bee garden. I then relaxed my criteria a little bit and it created a beautiful garden. So you asked the question, what if you tried to grow a bee garden in the Munger dormitory? Well, for our next project, I'm going to keep us in the digital realm, but we're going to move from bees to the bathroom. This is the story of Laufen, quite an interesting design and bathroom brand. And they've sort of launched this idea of a digital showroom. But in contrast to the way in which design brands normally create these things, which is sort of AR or options to see their products in these immaculately generated digital spaces, Laufen have done something a little bit different and they've created a series of digital collages which correspond to different areas. There's a desert one, for instance, there's a city. And they have this kind of um, Gen Z, quite internet ugly aesthetic, which is very nice, sort of wireframes onto which this cacophony of images and videos just 
play across it. And it's it's actually quite exciting because th- that's a problem in a way with bathroom design. How do you make something which is very functional, very important, feel beautiful or edgy or interesting or exciting? So they've sort of done it by leaning into this internet aesthetic and the results are really interesting actually. Have you seen it, India? I have and I found it also really fun this kind of almost like point and click style that it has the kind of like messy scribbles the way it sort of like erases things but also takes you on quite a considered visual journey you know if you get you know visuals of a bathroom and you're like this is inspired by a forest or this is inspired by a desert you're like "Mm, yeah okay like whatever it's a you've done some like nice marketing copy around a fairly standard bathroom but this I actually bought into the story I bought into the narrative it really takes you on this kind of creative journey it's fun it's engaging you don't have to kind of get fully in the metaverse it's not taking you into this kind of glitchy virtual space you know, everyone has to have their digital showroom now, everyone has to have a digital presence, but it has begun to look very samey. I think so. And the design world has been notorious for the sort of slowness with which it's embraced digital in the past. A lot of brands have quite dated websites, for instance. And the general sort of aesthetic tone of design tends to be this beautiful sort of minimalism, this very carefully curated, artfully put together display. So to have a brand which is sort of saying, no, we're really going to lean into the aesthetics of this medium and kind of embrace this much rougher look... I think kudos to them. And I think it's quite a forward-looking move and helps them stand out. So a pretty impressive initiative all round. Now, this product launch is an interesting one. I'm not sure if you've ever had a television on the crypt before, but this is actually quite a, a sexy and sleek television that also does it all. So this is um, a new product from Sky and it was designed with Map Project Office and it kind of has taken everything that you need for your television so your sound system your screen all of that functionality has been beautifully transformed into one single functional object well i've had an interest in televisions in design for some time contemporary flat screen televisions people don't think of as objects anymore which is a very strange thing in a way that screens don't get classified as objects whereas in the past uh, so sort of those golden years of television the CRT uh, dating back to the 50s televisions were a pretty big design commission I mean the great and the good of design they all did televisions Robin Day did a television Richard Sapper you have um, Philippe Stark doing one a huge range of these things and then it really dies off with the flat screen Um, it was actually a topic I looked into a few issues back in Desenio in part because you've started to see the emergence of new sets which are trying to um, rethink the television a little bit and move away from that huge hunk of black glass in the space. And I mean, the classic examples of this are the serif television by the Burlek brothers for Samsung, which creates this very sculptural, beautiful form and tries to restore the television to an object or a piece of furniture. And then the sort of rival approach by Yves Bahar, which is the frame, which when the television isn't on, it displays artwork. So it sort of just becomes a picture frame on the wall. These two two ways to kind of get round the black screen, which are both quite interesting, I think. What MAP has done, I would say, leans closer to the Burlick approach. It's much more of an object, isn't it? It has this sort of colourful aluminium body and it's sort of got a a presence it's not this um just blank screen of glass stuck to a wall which they're desperately trying to ignore when it's not on they've tried to give this a little bit of body and a little bit of um visual appeal yeah because i think it's it's quite tricky with a television it's got to um almost fight for space in a living room and i grew up in a family that always hid the television in a cupboard which i that was a very weird affectation, but they just never really go with the room. Whereas <laughs> this is a kind of, you know, you're going to notice it's there. But I also um, enjoy that kind of the sleekness that you, you're not going to have speakers kind of dotted around the room. You're not going to have loads of wires. It's, um, it's not just a design piece. It's also, it's pretty high tech. 
we talk about truth to materials in design. We talk about not hiding things away. Why not put a television front and centre if it's an object which everyone has and everyone uses? Maybe it is time its physical form got a little bit more consideration. Some effort was made to view it as as an interior item and as something to not be ashamed by, because I think there always has been this slight snobbishness around television. I'm I'm interested to see if there's going to be more sets like this and. Congratulations to Map for, for I think, doing a, an, an interesting design. So from televisions and kind of digital objects and all of that, I want to move to something slightly different, which are kind of accessories, pen pots, that sort of things, trays for your desk. But it's actually quite an interesting and progressive project that I have in mind. So this is Be Friends, a design for the furniture brand Benet by Pearson Lloyd. And it's a collection of little desk accessories. They're very sweet. They're quite fluid forms in very diverse colours. There's a whole range. But the key thing is that they're all 3D printed and they're all 3D printed from a cornstarch derived bioplastic. And the idea is that you can produce these objects locally so you don't have to ship them all around the world. And then you use them on your desk and at the end of their life, you know, they can be broken down. They're not going to go into landfill or anything like that. So it's an effort by Benet to sort of do a closed loop production cycle. Yeah, and um, they've shot them in this really nice way as a kind of like flat lay. And you can see these organic and interesting shapes. And, you know, you think that kind of desk tidies, there's only so much you can do, but they've done some really interesting forms. So they've been produced in conjunction with the 3D print specialist Batchworks, who I think have offices in London and Amsterdam. So initially they're being produced there. And one thing which is quite nice is they've used quite a wide nozzle on the 3D printing, so it makes the layers quite obvious. So you can tell very quickly and easily these are 3D printed objects. But that's really nice. It's an interesting aesthetic, I think. And it would be good to see more things like this from brands if they're going to bring out new products. Why not try something interesting out with the production or think about their end of life? Use some of these things as proof of concepts for more uh, sustainable long-term modes of manufacture. Would you, would you sit on a, on a chair if you could uh, look up the cow online? <laughs> so the, the cow whose leather is, is on the chair. Mm-hmm. Is this a thing? This is something that's happening. This this is a real thing. So um, there is a company called Spore that is actually connected to Denmark's last tannery, uh, but they're a completely separate business. And they have developed a system to deliver a field-to-furniture leather tracker. So Spore have brought this technology to Fredericia, the Danish furniture brand, which I'm sure you're aware of and they have collaborated so that you can um, if you so desire select to have your furniture made from spore leather which you can you can look it up you can track exactly where the hide that you are sitting on came from so um, it's from cattle that were raised in fields in northern europe so they're under eu animal welfare rules they are then transported to the abattoir and the hides are then lasered with a code which then remains on the leather for the whole of its processing from then on and this code which enables you to see the country that the cow was raised in the breed that it was and the abattoir where ended its days so you have this super traceable way of knowing where your where your object came from they call them data enriched hides i think there's that initial hurdle of it being slightly nightmarish that you could look up your leather and see oh great this leather has come from susan who lived in uh, copenhagen in a farm outside of there or well i'm very happy to sit on pauline who grew up in the fields of norway but it is probably a very good thing. And I actually think it's really helpful for any number of reasons to encourage a little bit more understanding of where materials come from and some of the realities of that. So even though, you know, I'm not pro leather, I don't want to buy leather goods. I think if you're going to buy leather, 
this is a really good initiative, right? This seems like something that's quite impressive and helpful. Well, I don't know about you. After all of this, I don't feel like I'm winding down for Christmas. I feel like I'm gearing up. This has actually filled me with um, quite a lot of uh, positives, I think. There's a lot of interesting news and initiatives that paint quite a rosy, a rosy outlook. I'm pleased to hear it. I'm still very much winding down. Frankly, I don't know if I'm coming back tomorrow. So Ollie is uh, hovering with his finger over the out of office button, but he is not tired because he has been slacking. Oh no, he has been burning the midnight oil um, to bring us all the uh, upcoming edition of Disegno. Issue number 31, which I'm pretty excited about because it's the first one that I have seen from start through to finish. Um, and yeah, that should be hitting newsstands well, almost in sync with this delivery of the crit. Yeah, it will be out early December. It's a winter issue. There's some really interesting things in there, I think, uh, some of which we've touched on in this episode. There's also a roundtable looking at plant life and how design treats that with Fernando Lapasse, Studio Dots, Iona Mann and some great practitioners. India has a really interesting interview with Mischief, the uh, New York-based performance artists come designers, and I think there's some great things in there looking at their work. It's available in selected retailers, and it's also available through our website, uh, desenojournal.com. And we do also offer subscriptions, so if you're stumped on what your super design-conscious friend would like for Christmas, you can always, you know, spread a little love, buy them a subscription. I think it would be a very nice gesture. Yeah, absolutely. I think they'd love it. In the interim, if you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can do so on at the Crit Podcast on Instagram, at the Crit Design on Twitter, or you can email us. We're on the Crit at com. We'll be back in December with our final episode of the year, and that may be a special episode. But until then enjoy i don't know enjoy design enjoy listening to this podcast as well now they've listened haven't they you can really listen why not it might reward repeat viewing the crit is presented by me india block and ollie stratford and has been produced and edited by ebby hall our theme music is composed by yuri suzuki with team suzuki at pentagon